वेलकम टू सन टॉक द सन टॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द सब स्ट्रक्चर मोजेक विल थिंक अबाउट द स्ट्रक्चरल कॉन्स्टिट्यूएंट्स बोथ रियल एंड एब्स्ट्रैक्ट ऑफ द मैनिफेस्ट वर्ल्ड इज स्पेस टाइम डिस्क्रीट और फ्लूड और कंटिन्यूस और एनीथिंग एल्स is there even such a thing as a fundamental level is continuum an abstraction is there structural recursiveness in the world is there correspondence between bulk and surface world are all levels interconnected how are molecular orbitals different from the atomic why do atoms form molecules Are there perfect spheres in the universe? Are there substructures in gaseous and liquid matter and how do they differ? Where does emergence exist? And what are the significant open questions? We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Professor Deepak Dhar He works in the area of statistical physics, in particular non-equilibrium statistical physics. He is currently emeritus professor at ISR Pune. Professor Kalidas Sen. He is from University of Hyderabad. His research area is quantum chemistry and in particular spatially confined electronic systems. And Professor Sumati Surya. She is from Raman Research Institute in Bangalore. She works in the area of general relativity and quantum gravity. So, Sumati, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? Um, maybe going all the way down to wherever and however that part of the world looks. Uh, what is your conception, like as you? gone about thinking about this over the last several years what do you think the super microscopic or you know microscopic in a way kind of already presumes a particle kind of world what is what is your picture of that side of the world and what is what does structure mean in that realm in that domain at that scale yeah so of course we're talking about a theory of quantum gravity which doesn't technically exist hmm. in that it's an incomplete theory it's and not a theory is, yet it's not yet a theory so we're working towards it and so there are different attitudes and different approaches and the particular approach that i work on currently assumes a fundamental discreteness to space time in some sense it's a very natural thing for a physicist to think about because we think of you know especially in the realm of condensed matter and chemistry you know that Everything things is particular. Look, yeah. yeah, and things look continuum-like, but uh, the very small they are of a very different character. So that's pretty much the attitude behind this approach. But it is also something that actually presents itself somewhat naturally from um, from the mathematics of what are called Lorentzian spacetimes, and I can explain that a little bit. But it's essentially something that. Einstein told us in 
you know, when he first discovered special relativity, that when you think of space and time as a single entity, it has a very particular structure to it, um, which is that of causality, which is of ordering, something coming before something else. You mean the whole the whole thing, space-time, both? Yeah, space and time together. So event has a position or a location as well as like some moment when it happens. Or yeah, so it has a location as well as a time. But the point is that even in special theory of relativity, there are things called light cones hmm. because light travels at a finite speed and no signal can transmit outside of that cone. So because you have these light cones, you have a light cone to the future and a light cone to the past. And basically that means that you can separate things into a past and to a future. And this is actually not there if I basically looked at just space, right? There's no notion of before and after. And that is actually very quintessentially there in the notion itself of space-time. The fact that everywhere you have a light cone that can tell you this is a future direction and that's a past direction. And based on that, people have been trying to reimagine how you think of space-time over the last century. So the earliest work was somebody called Rob. But is there is there arrow of time? Is time going in one direction? Or when you say yes. light cone in the past, that's just past converging into that moment? Or yes. is there something else going on? There, locally, it's just converging into that moment. And then you can ask for global time. Hmm. But the globally, it all stitched up. You can stitch it all up into a single time that, in fact, goes only in one direction. And that would be what you call global causality. And so this structure of thinking of space-time in a completely different way than, say, Riemann thought of space has been something that's slowly kind of, you know, getting clearer to people. I mean, it was getting clearer to people until some very important theorems in the field. And which suggests that maybe that's what you've got to start to think of as the most fundamental aspect of space-time, which is a causal relation between space-time events. And the idea then is to use space-time events like atoms and the relations between them, which are causal relations, to construct your theory of quantum gravity. And what are the topological or geometric type of implication? Does it mean that things appear differently in this world? By appear, Absolute, I mean appearance. Yeah, so I mean, absolutely. In fact, quite, you know, this whole idea that you have of emergence is very much a part of this thing that in the very small, you have a very different substructure. But in the large, you have to reproduce space-time. Yeah. And so what are the rules for doing that? So much of what we do is also trying to figure out what the rules are for recovering space-time in the right sense. You know, recovering things that we know about the continuum. Um, and that's uh, basically working bottom-up to say when, when you can get that emergent property of the continuum but it's all fundamentally in the relations, the order relations. Topologically, even though it looks like a set of points which are not related, the order relation gives a very rich topological structure. So, in fact, you can recover things like spatial topology out of just causal order relations of a continuum space-time. So, there's a lot of richness in that structure, in the causal structure. And uh, that's what we work with, you know, to construct a theory of quantum gravity, which is a, obviously still a work in progress. So, Yeah, we'll get back to that. And Kalidas, when you think of, uh, in your kind of work, do you, 
what is the most fundamental unit? I know obviously a lot of it is quantum mechanical, um, but when you're in the chemistry realm, do you just start off with atoms, electrons? You just go from there, and then it's it's all about them cohering into form forming molecules. And again, what are the structural implications? Are there substructures the way you see it as a quantum chemist? Essentially, the answer is yes. There is always to start with some structure. In chemistry, we generally say that this is a discipline consisting of structure, dynamics, synthesis, and simulations. And interconnectedness is the fundamental thing happening in our world of chemistry, which means that you have to start with structure, in this case, the structure of nuclei around which there will be a certain number of electrons floating around. And depending upon the state of the electronic system, for an N electron, for example, one will have for the ground state, the floating around of electrons around an equilibrium nuclear position is going to be just settling down around the nuclear geometry, which is the structure, to give the minimum energy. So that would be ground state. For excited state, similarly, there will be a discrete energy levels. So for a single electron system, is it like a fixed nucleus and a fixed circular orbit? What goes on? Of course, there's like other matter around it, so there are other kind of forces at work. But uh, in that confined, isolated kind of system, is that, again, geometrically, is that pristine? And uh, how messy is it or how pristine is it? Generally, in the spatially confined systems, of electronic nature, for example, atoms and molecules. We take a model, for example, that uh, the space is uh, a spherical volume inside which, at the center, there's a point nucleus in the simplest model, and around it, there is, let's say, a single electron, for example, a hydrogen atom. Now, with a finite radius of the confining sphere, which is, a, let's say, cavity confinement, we... Finite fixed radius or finite? Yes, finite fixed, fixed radius. radius. Yes. Uh, for the movement of electrons, the nucleus is fixed to begin with. We have all the energy levels of electrons as discrete. Mm-hmm. However, in this Coulombic system, if we increase the radius of the sphere to infinity, we say that now we have what is popularly known as free hydrogen atom. Right. So the electron could be… And then electron can have bound states as well as continuum states. But the moment we put that spherical cavity radius to any finite value, we have all the states as discrete. So this is therefore a very general way of looking at any electronic system. Any electron system is a differently confined system, especially. And 
In this simple model, we learned that there is a discrete structure at the background. The moment we assume that there is a finite size. And I and I noticed you use the word model system right at the start. Yeah, because this so is like in the re, in the real world, uh, in the atoms and molecules that exist, uh, are things any different? Yes, very true. Because this model is a model of impenetrable boundary. The potential is very large. It's infinite right. potential. Very high. In real systems, there is nothing like it. Everything has a finite height. So there is a penetration across the barrier and there is interaction with the surroundings. So this model is the model in that sense as the primitive model. And then, of course, it can be improvised in terms of finite boundaries, shapes which may differ from spherical to ellipsoidal or any other kind of geometric shape. And also, you can have multiple boundaries, not just boundary from zero to R. You can have a boundary at R1, a concentric boundary at R2 radius, and so on, which will be extending or generalizing this model to what will be called a shell-confined right. system. Uh, finally, you can also vary the nucleus in a non-central position. It need not be at the center of sphere. It can be slightly away from the center. So there are all kinds of possibilities which this model can be extended to and then applied to the real physical systems. Yeah, no, I a lot of questions buzzing in my head which I'll get to. Deepak, why don't we get to your intuition on the substructure question, to the most general question of are there substructures or subconstituents that in turn lead to, you know, like the manifest world that we see at one level and then there are substructures that form at that level which lead to how the world looks at the next level and so on. What is your imagery of the physical world, if that's the right phrase? So some of these uh, substructures, of course, we know exist and we have given them names. So, you know, so there is the liquids and as you said, one now knows that there are things called atoms which you don't see, but actually they are there. Okay. But coming closer to the kind of question which Sumati sort of addressed is, is the space-time itself continuous or discrete? Hmm. So, I would just like to start by saying that, you know, even as a undergraduate student, I found it very hard to believe that if you take two points and in between them there is another point. And, you know, the mind kind of reels at the idea of how many points are there really? And uh, what does it mean? The answer, infinity, is not satisfactory? It, it kind of boggles my mind. Right. Okay. So th that was the point. The point was that if there are so many points there, what are they doing? Are they doing anything? Or, they, you know, it's just there and they're not doing anything. Are these just abstractions? Yeah, are they abstractions? And so I think uh, much later I learned about this Wheeler's phrase of foam-like structure of space-time. Right. Which is very evocative yeah. and very sort of useful even for outsiders to appreciate what is the point. So what he was saying was that if you look at space very closely, then maybe it doesn't look like a continuum anymore. Maybe in between 
some material, there is something which is, there is nothing else there. You know, there, there are some and plastic. And that's because of the probabilistic nature and this wiggling going all around uh, at that right level? Right now, I will take the, you know, we'll, we'll worry about wiggling also, but I would just say space-time is space-time, so it cannot wiggle by itself much. So, uh, no, <laughs> because the time is part of the structure. Right. And so one can say that it's a random structure. Just some random structure of space-time, not very simple and continuous, but more random. And can one understand some properties of real space-time in terms of the underlying uh, foaminess of the structure? And uh, I guess the point is that even if you take some foam and look at a meter scale, it looks pretty continuous. But you can do some experiments and then eventually realize, no, 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 there are actually holes in them. And uh, so maybe one can do some such stuff, even with um, space-time as we know it. Uh, those are usually very high energies and uh, those experiments are not easily imagined. And people have tried to find evidence for the space-time structure, discrete structure of space-time. And so far they have not succeeded. But I would say that the idea that it has to be discrete comes from this idea that if there is some point, you know, there has to be some something there. And too much, too many points there will be, it will be energetically difficult for the system to actually have some, too many points which are distinguishable and distinguished or whatever. Right. So that is the reason. Uh, one can one needs to worry about the discrete structure of space-time is because um, it's hard for us to imagine infinities. Maybe I'm just um, psychologically disadvantaged, but that's the way it is. I think, in fact, what you've said is something that's uh, really uh, quite important because even at the level of in school, when mm. you're told na, that here's a ruler, here's a line, and you keep chopping it up and chopping it up, I believe that actually you have to be taught against mm. your better judgment that there is an infinity. Because you're, I think, mentally as mm. a child, as a young person, and I think the idea of an infinity. But what is interesting is also that Riemann, when he talked mm. about manifolds, all mm. continuum structures, mm. said at the fundamental level there should be discreteness. Mm -hmm. This is way before Einstein, way mm. before any notion of, uh, you know, gravity as curvature or space-time, or anything, but that fundamentally, at a fundamental level, there is discreteness. So I think precisely this, that if you want to see effects of that discreteness, if you want to be able to actually check if it's there, the one thing that we do have is a very old universe. Mm. So these are the secular effects that people mm. look for mm. with things where you can have the equivalent of, uh, of Brownian motion, but with space-time. Mm. And, uh, you know, then you see, potentially can see signatures over a very long period of time of very, very small effects, so secular effects. So that's a kind of, mm -hmm. yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. But what does this Wheeler's foamy notion, because you mentioned Lorenzian uh, a little while ago, how does one conceive of time in that foamy? Uh, so I know it's space-time, so it's one thing, I get that, mm. but... Do you have any difficulty? Like, how, how do you visualize time in there, in that space time, in that foam? So, the foam is the space time, no? Yeah, yeah, foam is the space time. 
And it's it's it's. So previously, you were imagining there is an event here, event here, and then they are all connected in some way, and they are still there. You know, they are all connected in some way, but they are sitting in a foam. I guess the idea is that in the smallest, it doesn't look like a nice smooth structure, whereas that's sort of how you imagine that in the very small, it just becomes more and more boring as you go to the. But the idea of this is that mm. it becomes actually. Far different from what you imagine it to be. I mean, I guess if you want to take an analogy, if you look at a fluid, and you say, "Am I going to imagine that inside a fluid are molecules of this particular, like a water molecule?" You wouldn't be able to guess that. You know, you have this V-shaped object, right? I mean, a water molecule mm. of that shape that's sitting in there. But that's the kind of structure that is there, and. Uh, and is that is that world curved like all the space time curvature business where does gravity come into this and we know of this four fundamental forces this that uh for me yes sure but is there curvature there yeah so i mean curvature as defined is for a continuum concept hmm. so we have something things potentially wilder than curvature right more ways to describe geometry which are not continuum ways of describing geometry but of course we have to make sure that in the right approximation that you get out the curvature of the continuum so and even like i said even topology is this this connection but it's not continuum topology curvature is not continuum curvature it's of a different mathematical object and it's the things that deepak knows well which are these posets uh, which are it's a different mathematical structure than what einstein had and there is no uh, visual way to think about posets oh this i can give you a demonstration of a poset which is like <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite demonstration <laughs> but it's one event after the other and uh, or you know two more like that and it's just events which are and you just have an order relation between them yeah and so we can in fact draw up a poset of this conversation of what happens before when and of course we'll have to have very very narrow light cones because yeah <laughs> we, yeah <laughs> quick past quick future yeah. yeah so but yeah you can draw i mean it's posets are in fact used a lot in branches of mathematics like computer science also um a lot and these are networks they use this kind of mathematics so this mathematics is very rich it's a very well known so the sort of well simple example of posets is you know you take all people and they are related to each other by bloodlines so somebody's father of something and grandfather and father above or you are related by second cousin relationship so all these will be a family tree like relationship family right? tree like relationship Everybody in is, events will yes. be poset of events otherwise yeah. it's a poset of people some people are disconnected you know they have no relationship whatsoever and it all depends on whether there was an origin point right because if there are if there was if there's like I, adam and eve to start yeah. off <laughs> no i then, understand then there's a then they may be very far apart but it's a part of a family tree and things may get chopped off here and there but yeah. they so will converge in general a poset need not have a common starting point but if there is a common starting point then of course everybody starts from there but at some level you can say these two events are related to each other 
they are it's one above the other or one below the other or not not neither above nor below and all these possibilities exist and you know one can work with them in this way what is an event for you uh kalidas uh and you know for example a bond formation hmm. between two uh, infinitely separated atoms forming a molecule uh would be the fundamental event in chemistry and efforts have gone on since 1927 in wave mechanics to understand this and today we are in a situation where thanks to developments like density functional theory we are able to do the real uh, molecular systems in terms of its structure and properties at least in the ground state i mean they match with experiments uh, like never before so that is in chemistry but recently i have been reading a lot because there is so much of interest in the subjects of uh, quantum gravity and also statistical physics in general uh, i chanced upon reading an article recently on uh, quantum algorithms which has relations with this quantum computing and the result is very very interesting in the sense that if you have a maze uh before you and you want to go through it there will be a quantum algorithm and a classical algorithm and quantum algorithm will be exponentially much more fast faster yeah than the classical one but the price you pay is that's that, because it works with random sampling like yeah essentially yeah that is what I was coming to that if you ask the question that how did it happen what was the path taken to come out in a, in the fastest way the answers are mathematically proven that it cannot be determined you forget the path you forget the path yeah you you have to just accept that it is not going to be found mhm that's quantum quantum in it so the algorithm is the fastest of such an algorithm will not tell you how it actually came to do that this is like protein folding and leventhal's paradox and things happening really quickly that kind of a thing or there are no sub steps and you go from uh, we, start we, to we, end directly I, i think there is something like that uh, is unknowable it is more like if you try to determine the path you destroy the interference pattern in quantum mechanics so you you know the process changes if you try to yeah. measure it in between so in between you shouldn't interfere with when the computer when it is working that is the idea it's spooky but ah, i think i guess all of quantum mechanics is spooky quantum mechanics was yeah. supposed to be spooky in, from birth and you know in terms of einstein also yeah einstein said this first How do you think of the idea of emergence, Deepak? Like this, 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 this macroscopic world that we live in, and obviously some of the quantum mechanical stuff that Sumati so, and all of you have spoken so, about. Because the word emergence comes with several different meanings. Mm-hmm. One of these is that whatever looks very discrete at some small length scale may look pretty continuous at big length scale. So even if I go to the seashore, and there are sand grains. 
But from a distance, it looks like nice flat earth, no? I mean, what is the big deal? So the emergence here is just that on the large length scales, you don't see the grains and it looks continuous, okay? But emergence has lots of other meanings. For example, I mean, I was just discussing earlier um, yesterday, actually, that you look at a person. Person is made up of a lot of cells. So is the person a collection of cells? No, because this because collection of cells or collection of molecules keeps on changing with time. And we say it is the same person. Even though the molecules are changing, the person is not changing. So uh, Anderson at one time said, whole is bigger than some of its parts. I'm sort of modifying it to say whole is different from the sum of its parts. Because the person is not the collection of molecules, it's something else. For us, you know, there is an entity called a person and it is not the collection of molecules. It is the person which remains the same and grows old with time and so on and so forth. But the question, uh, Deepak, is a bit different. I, mm. I think your point is understood and it's a subtle one. But is the whole always different from the sum of the parts? Like, emergence doesn't always happen, right? Like, I could put... Uh, you know, different kinds of sand together, which you know a lot about. And sometimes it leads to like this sometimes pattern. Sometimes it leads to a black hole. If, if something strange didn't happen... So the question is, were... when does emergence happen? So I'm saying that if I find some property which is I didn't expect or it wasn't put in, then it is called emergence. And if you haven't found it, then you just look harder. And it is quite likely that some kind of stuff happens, but it is not guaranteed to happen all the time. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, if I put all these atoms together or all these cells together, a person will form. Maybe he won't form and, you know, they have to be put together in some special way for the person to occur. So is that, and obviously that process is not random. So the question is, what is the theory of emergence? Like, ha, how does Very one... good. So for biology, it was called self-organization for a long time. Nobody directs the cells to do the particular thing, but they have somehow organize themselves to form a complete animal which behaves in particular ways. But even in physical systems, there's self-organized criticality and all that. Yeah, right? so this was much older concept of self-organization in biology. But then people later said that even in physics, you can find systems which seem to organize themselves to particular types of behavior, which a priori you might not have guessed. So, for example, uh, Peer Bach said that if you take sand piles, then uh, they seem to be critical in some sense. And normally, criticality was supposed to require some fine-tuning of parameters and you do something very special, then things become critical. But here, the things are becoming critical without any fine-tuning. So, it was called self-organized criticality. And I think it helps understand the behavior of some of the granular matter. But the notion of self-organization is more general. And uh, I think the underlying idea which has been there for a long time is uh, this clockwork universe. You know, the universe is, is like a clock. It is made of these small elements. If you know how these small elements behave and you put them together, then the whole thing will be explained. And I guess that point that if you put a lot of small things together, you know how the big thing will behave is no longer true. We know that very well. Yeah. And there are many examples. Yeah. I mean, it, it's basically the idea of 
collective behavior versus I mean emergent properties happen when uh, this collective behavior um and I think I mean the simplest thing is to even think about the water molecule mm. which is a molecular chemistry level and then to think of statistical physics and the fact that you have phase transitions right you cannot guess a phase transition from a single water molecule even if you know that it's shaped like a on you know a wide v yeah if you had uh, only one water molecule you wouldn't know you that wouldn't if you put know. many you together would, yeah hmm. you wouldn't know that if you looked at a cell you wouldn't know that it is uh, that it can you know be a part Lead of to it. this emergent yeah. organism <laughs> and i i mean i'd like to go a little bit further with this with just saying that i think that's also true of human beings i think that in the sense that society uh, and and this is an idea which is actually very deep, deep in physics which is also very important is that of renormalization wilsonian kind of understanding of emergent properties and i think it's actually true of human beings as well because individually we could be very very you know it, there's a sort of soul searching that people do where everything is dependent on the individual and society is bad because individuals are bad but i do think that the collective behavior of humans is very different in diff- at different scales and i think that the same kind of principles of physics that we do mm. where we look at different behavior at different scales different collective behavior that's how we You're should try to understand the equivalent of uh, phase transition in social physics i i believe yeah. so in fact i often think of the ising model mm. of you know mm. <laughs> randomly oriented versus singly oriented you know under phase transition so i think that we are all you can think of as a statistical system with random biases and you put a very strong magnetic field bias and then everything sort of aligns towards that bias you know there's multiple examples of this kind but i think these statistical examples are in fact quite useful as models of society as well yeah so working slightly differently if you take psychology for example so human beings when i realize that i am part of a bigger society like uh, a nation then my behavior changes uh, which is a different kind of feedback effect of the bigger system yeah, a kind of uh, backward causation some of yeah, the yeah, whole yeah. is influencing the part yeah. uh, in, in a sense it is a my realization that i am part of a bigger system changes my behavior whether it is because the bigger system is putting some uh, in extra information or feedback or uh, maybe i just appreciate the influence of the bigger part on me more yeah i mean the, the people who do um, this is loosely called social physics they do, i mean all the norm culture and all that is mm. a kind of information what happens in chemical systems kalidas like again we touched upon ideas of emergence ideas of uh, part whole relationship i think i i know we went from we were in electronic systems but is there a macro influencing the micro in some way i know you created that non confined electronic system so that's helpful but how does one think about this the answer is yes uh, just to start from where deepak left uh, if you give a lot of space in terms of interacting in the society versus the individual you are having different kind of special confinement so you may not realize that it is changing your behavior so much but you are part of it and it has happened many times in different societies before in chemistry and certainly in biological sciences 
this is always true. Where, that, tell me something before that. Where does physics become chemistry? Like, w- what's going on? Well, like, you know, the, of course, one gets quantum mechanics, but when does it, quantum physics, when is it quantum chemistry? Is it just going from atoms to molecules? Or? Yes, essentially, the world of chemistry or the world of chemists is something that they create in terms of the structures that they form in the laboratory, in addition to what already exists, starting, for example, from water to anything like water that they would like to synthesize. Yeah, so anything synthesized, which is the four, four exactly. points you so, made, so we, we including love, simulation. Yes, yes. We love to make predictions made possible through synthesis right. with structure in mind, which has different properties. Right. Whereas in physics, the, the physics world, is dealing with naturally yes, occurring. The world is given. The world is given. Um, in your case, you're trying to create yes. objects or properties right, right. that don't pre-exist. Right, right. So we always often find that the sum is not equal to the parts taken separately, like non-interacting and interacting. But to control the manner in which the sum will go is what chemists do. And uh, the whole lot of new material science, new materials, etc., which are actually so interdisciplinary. There is chemistry, there is physics, there is computer science. So, so you're the best person to ask this substructure question because you're trying to synthesize these new things. You would probably have a certain kind of view on what the building blocks are, which is substructures. Well, that is the one of the frontier problems of uh, biological sciences, to make a living system completely synthetically. Mm. Every part will be synthetic and it will be living. So it gives us problems like how do we understand uh, consciousness or in more popular terms brain and mind and things like that. But let alone that, like even at the level of a single cell, everything inside the cell is like protein or whatever, whatever. It's like cytoplasm. Things are yes. more or less synthetic. Like they're not living, living, but then the cell yeah, is living. You, you can, one can always, again, go to the last part of chemistry, which I mentioned, simulation. Hmm. So Martin Karplus gave a statement very recently after I asked him a question in a general seminar that in view of the advances in quantum computing, how do you see the molecular dynamics and similar advances to affect our approach to do science? So he said very interestingly that maybe he is too optimistic, but he said that in about a decade or so, we will be able to make real-time simulations of what is happening in a single cell on mm-hmm. the in silico. In silico? Yeah. And this is the kind of uh, projection that is there from these specialists. So understanding the basic fundamental interactions of atoms and molecules, whether they are bonded or non-bonded or of dispersion type or long-range type, uh, is not a problem anymore. The problem is to see where does it lead to depending upon the environmental conditions. That is why synthesizing, complete synthesis of a living system, and it leads to some very basic fundamental questions once again. For example, 
how do you measure temperature in these synthetic systems? Is there a biological temperature sensor? Is there a RNA thermometer? What is it that keeps your temperature the way it is? Yeah, homeostasis, like yeah, how do you maintain yeah, yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. But in synthetic system, people have not worried about it. But how will you get, you need a kind of thermodynamic stability, right? Yes, it's, it's an open question today, although it's so basic. Can I ask a question from what, this transition from quantum mechanics to quantum chemistry? So quantum mechanics we think of in simplistic terms as just a Schrodinger equation. Give me a potential. If I can solve it, I can solve it, and that's the answer. But when you're doing quantum chemistry, is it just a Schrodinger equation, or do you... I mean, just, I mean I'm mean, i thinking of the equivalent of going to the fluid dynamics limit, for example, where you have Navier-Stokes equation, which... Yeah. You know, it's a large-scale macroscopic thing. Where in quantum, from quantum physics to quantum chemistry, do you come to that regime in which you have actually new equations that you have to solve? Is, does it, has it come to that point? I mean, I know very little about quantum very chemistry. Very interesting. Actually, that's what Walter Cohn did and in 1964. So if you, if you recall, 1926-27 was quantum mechanics and wave mechanics, that is, Heisenberg and Max Born School, quantum mechanics and wave mechanics of Schrodinger. Then the next major advance was made by the theorems known as Hohenberg-Cohen theorems, which is 1964. And it is there that the key parameter was considered to be electron density rather than the wave function. So, the mapping... What is electron density? Uh, electron density would be, in simplest term, the probability density of finding electron... Finding electron in a certain... At a certain, certain position, location, location in space, which yeah. is a three-parameter quantity, a location. Of course, one can go to time-dependent yeah. uh, generalizations, but I'm giving you the simplest form. And that makes a 3n, because n is the number of electrons in the n-electron system, it makes a 3n variable system reduced to a 3 variable system. Right. So you can do very large molecules. Mm. And the theorems being exact that there exist for the ground state in a given external potential, a functional of electron density for all properties, including energy. So that led to two basic theorems called Hohenberg-Cohen theorem 1 and 2, 1964. And then its implementation in the computer was given by Cohen and Sham. So it is called, then it is a modeling, Cohen-Sham model. So they went back to the concept of orbitals, but in this case, they are orbitals of a particular nature. They are the orbitals of a non-interacting system. The only demand that is put on these orbitals, which are fictitious orbitals, is that they will give me the exact density of the fully interacting system. So that led to a set of orbital equations, which are called Cohen-Sham orbitals. Mm. Then the theory developed further. Still, there are unknown parts of that, which is known in general as the exchange correlation functional. So one has to... the 
exchange correlation energy is again a density, a function of density. So one has to approximate that. So that is where, so the theory up to the Kohensham formalism is exact. But the part of the exchange correlation potential which puts all the quantum effects of the interaction energy into a single box is unknown. So the unknown part has been reduced to a very small percentage of total energy. And then there are models of various coins which are very famously known today as the Yakov's ladder of the development of exchange correlation functionals. So this is where it has shifted from uh, the mapping in the wave functional theory where you go from external potential to Hamiltonian to the wave function to the density, which is a square of the, of the wave function. Wave function is not an experimental property. It's the square of the, so which is the electron density, which is measurable in all these diffraction experiments. The inverse mapping was proven by Walter Cohn and Hohenberg, known as Hohenberg-Cohn theorem. And that further on was given as some kind of a working out model in terms of Cohn-Sham model that is exact. And the unknown part of that particular exchange correlation functional, a very small percentage, is actually being modeled now and the developments are going on. Then it can also be extended to the time-dependent density functional theory. Lot of success. You can predict the spectra of molecules. Like you create, you synthesize a new molecule and you can predict the spectra. Yes. Uh, a priori, like yes, before, yes, yes, yes. before actually measuring it. Exactly. And then its implementation into the molecular dynamics, which is now known famously in terms of Carparinello dynamics, is now uh, a popular method of doing more, most of this in addition to the classical simulation is a equally popular method of doing uh, host-guest interactions. And a number of life-saving drugs on, in the market are outcome of that kind of work, right. that kind of theoretical work. To give you a simple example, up to 65 to 70% of the world supercomputer time is spent in quantum chemistry plus simulations. 65 to 70%. And this is the data almost 10 years back. I'm sure it has gone much more than that. And, and, and you're including all the CERN computers. Everything, that, everything. Okay. All, all supercomputing time in the world. And mm. everything which works on chat GPT also. <laughs> chat GPT also. This is 10 years ago. So. This is 10 years ago. Chat GPT was not there. But, but to come back to the point that I'm mentioning is that there is so much of investment by industry. Yeah into the quantum chemistry and molecular dynamics, classical dynamics simulations that one cannot even imagine because if there is one drug molecule which is going to be working yeah, yeah. out be of this... Yeah, a blockbuster drug and you can make... Yeah, you can make as many times as you want of the investment. This is where the reality is moving in terms of let's say, computational science or computational chemistry. Very interesting. What so, are the open questions? So Sorry, I would just Deepak. like to make a comment that, of course, there, there is this uh, Kohn-Hohenberg or Kohn-Sham equation. They tell you about the ground state of some electronic systems. 
but most of the real dynamics involves extra approximations and assumptions. So it's not fair to say that they have derived a mathematical equation which works. So in, in the end, there are working simulations of, uh, you know, chemical reactions or whatever, which help you make drugs, which is very good. But saying that they start, they are all due to the Kohn-Hohenberg theorem is not fair. I, I never said that it is all due to Kohn-Hohenberg. Inspired by. Yeah, it is inspired by that. It is are direction. you suggesting that maybe that there is this art that goes in of approximation? Mm. Art of, of constructing a, an effective theory where it is more than just you know, deriving from bottom up. And this is what is also very important. And I think we don't learn enough of this when we're taught physics. Mm. We think of everything as doing bottom up. But the art of actually finding the right degrees of freedom, of being able to decide that these are the right things that you need in the next step, that goes into constructing the effective theory. So is that what you're suggesting? Is that Mm. essentially... Yes, so let me elaborate a little more. Uh, It is to be understood that both wave functional theory as well as density functional theory, they are complementary to each other. Hmm. One learns from the other Hmm. in its development. And actually, this is what has happened. So in the molecular quantum chemistry, which we were doing using the Schrodinger equation, uh, for example, a very significant advancement is called the coupled cluster theory. The results of that form the theoretical standard to be reproduced by the density functionals mm. in which we approximate mm. the exchange correlation piece of the energy density. Mm. And the functional derivative of that is the exchange correlation potential, mm. which goes into the cohn sham equations. Mm. Now, the trend is something very, very interesting and really to be wondered about. And that is the following, that we now all talk about AI and machine learning and devising functionals, which actually take away from the ab initio formulation of the exchange correlation functional, but give you a method which which gives you a new functional Mm synthesized by the AI means in Mm. some way and it works. Mm. Now, it may work only for a set of molecular systems which are closely related on which it has been actually synthesized. But the general scenario Mm. is the following and which can be very nicely worded as the molecules are helping to discover new molecules. Mm. By that, I mean that you have quantum computing based on, let's say, the memory, Mm. which are molecular. And in that sense, the molecules are giving you new molecules. Well, that's just anthropomorphic imagination, right? No, it is is reality. There are so many recent papers, which I can quote, which actually... Because I think the the word to be underscored that is helping, um, like you, you ascribing agency... Yeah, essentially, the, 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 the methodology is going in that direction, that you are using uh, chemistry knowledge to advance the chemistry further at the molecular level. 
That was always the case. That was always the case. But to, to, but that is always the case. But uh, not at this level of uh, control. Hmm. You know that is where lives are saved. You can take a levorotatory molecule hmm. in space. It may be a poison. Hmm. You take a dextroform, hmm. which will cure you. Hmm. No, but how, that's, that's, how do you predict? That's because everything around us chemistry, Kalidas. No, no, but how do you predict that to that fineness, that controlled, sure, sophistication? That is the aim. That is why we have faster and faster computers required, uh, large memories, more accurate algorithms, and things like that. That is, we are moving in that direction. In, in many ways, I think the the future direction in, in at least in my discipline is already set. I think one of the things that you've spoken of, Deepak, in the past is this whole Turing game of life kind of thing. And I mean, working that here. And how do you think of randomness? Uh, yeah, so in the Turing game of life, people can identify a very large screen on which some disturbance moves. Right. In some particular way. And that disturbance moves like this in, independent of what background it is moving in. So the randomness occurs in the background and hopefully the macrostructure we are thinking about doesn't feel it very strongly and moves independent of the detailed background. So the randomness perhaps we want to avoid in the output, in the macro behavior, even though it is there in the underlying stuff. That is the way to understand, trying to understand when this can happen and because it doesn't have to happen all the time is what is the role of randomness in understanding this behavior. And, you know, uh, I think the reason I'm bringing this up is that as you think of several of these self-organized criticality systems and you've thought of many of these, and Kalidas used the word simulation. Hmm. Do you think systems also simulate or is the sampling of the uh, space? Like, would you, would you use the word simulation there in any way? Because no, what the system does is the real thing. And simulation is supposed to be the artificial contrived stuff, which is not the real thing. So, you know, in the usual usage of the word, so the, so the when the electron moves, it doesn't simulate its motion, it does it its does motion. It does its motion itself, yeah. <laughs> right. No, I'm talking of the entire system. Hmm. Uh, it, it explores the possibility of space in reality. In quantum mechanics, it does. That is what we assume it always does. It hmm. always explores all possible things and sums them up and does their thing. What are the open questions, Deepak, at, at your level, at your level, Sumati? For me, I'm sure there are many. You mentioned quantum gravity is figuring itself out, but in the in this narrow substructure leading to the whole world question. So there are times when the narrow substructures lead to predictable behavior of the macro, and that is what we would like to understand better. And sometimes there are signatures of big things happening earlier, you know, like in earthquakes. So people want to know, if, can you predict earthquake? Can you predict stock market breakdown? And, uh, you know, so then that's the usefulness part of it, that can we find signals of better predictive behavior of future in general? What's your view on this earthquake question? Let's confine ourselves to that. 
So in or any other system you understand better, you think? Uh, so in the earthquake question, people have tried to do these kinds of prediction based on existing earthquake record. You can say that, uh, you know, this is an earthquake-prone region, but in the recent past, not much has happened. So the stress is building up and it is possible that some big earthquake will occur soon. This has been tested in California region. You know, in California, there are a lot of earthquakes. But earthquakes of size bigger than five, which is not a very big one. It doesn't cause newspaper reports. But if you can predict that um, an earthquake of size five will occur within three days, which is a non-trivial prediction, these kinds of things have been done and tested. I think large-scale prediction of very big events is not yet possible. And but these up to three-day kind of things in California have worked? Uh, it was self. not three days. It was actually more like fifteen days. Okay. And it actually, so they predicted within fifteen days, and it did happen. But you know that maybe chance. It uh, yeah, chance it is even. not fully reliable scheme of prediction, but it seems to be promising. Is what one can say. So the point is that people want to predict uh, very large events because those are the ones which are dangerous. But those are also rarer. They don't occur often. And it's hard to get statistics about these. And, we, you know, we say that this thing will happen in the next 30 years. Nobody is interested. If I say that a major earthquake will occur in the Himalayas in the next 30 years, it is, of course, true it will occur. But where will it occur and when will it occur? Unless I can tell more precisely, the predictions are not, Right now, the predictions are not at the level where they are useful for policymakers. What about you, Samanti? Like, are there other open questions that you think you you guys are close to breakthrough on? Well, I mean, in, in the, yeah, that's a very that's a very, very tall demand of quantum gravity. Uh, quantum gravity is still a very big open problem, so it's not even a theory. A big open problem. We make little bits of progress and, you know, um, little breakthroughs happen. Um, we try to understand things uh, and it depends on which approach you're taking. But in our approach, I think one of the big open questions is how quantum dynamics, you know, how does from quantum dynamics, how do you get the classical world we live in? That's sort of the emergence question in the right limit. We've made some little bit of progress on a part of that question. Um, but of course, the big questions are there. Um, but yes, I think on in terms of uh, phenomenology, there is, you know, there's a lot of interest in trying to do quantum gravity phenomenology. But just because it comes at a very macroscopic level, it's enough to cut out maybe something that goes against it, but it'll never be a smoking gun experiment like you can have in CERN, right? I mean, a smoking gun saying, you found the Higgs, standard model is great. I think that kind of thing is really far, very far. And it's in something one has to see this as a historic process in a historical context. So these are interesting questions. We don't have consistent theoretical models and we search for consistent theoretical models. But you said that one can expect some kinds of signatures of big... Yeah, so there is quantum gravity events in. in Yes, so there is, in fact, one very important prediction that came from uh, Raphael Sorkin on the cosmological constant. 
before it was actually shown to be a very small but uh, positive number on the constant on the constant which is uh, so he used very simple ideas from uh, causal sets to show that the fluctuation so it's uh, yes it's not really a constant but the fluctuates the size of the fluctuation is exactly what was observed several years later so it's a very beautiful literally back of the envelope calculation and uh, it comes from the statistical nature of space time so of continuum like space time so a, a continuum like causal sets or these poset structures and uh, uh, that is i think a very important actually physical reason why this is an interesting and promising approach there are also things like swerving particles where if you think of a very discrete substructure and you have like in brownian motion something particle hopping around it every now and then gets a kick because it can't really go in a straight line on a random lattice so because it doesn't go in a straight line it gets does a diffusion in momentum space and that means diffusion that diffusion in momentum space right yeah so over time it picks up a tail of very high energy uh, particles with very high energy so there are very interesting predictions from this nothing has been seen yet in that case but i think yeah so there are mm. such things which are very important for um, for any quantum gravity approach so what is your view of the world kalidas yeah. like you yeah, why don't you right. make a point and yeah, then come sure, to yeah sure sure uh, as deepak mentioned very interestingly and very simply that electrons will move in an electron system they don't simulate their own move they're yeah, moving you you have to worry about how exactly you understand that dynamics and that continues to be a problem in quantum chemistry and that is known as the electron correlation all the n electrons are moving on their own there are certain some rules of the motion which are very fundamental and those some rules must be obeyed that is for sure because they are exact rules for example if an electron is moving in an n electron system where n minus 1 electrons are also moving giving due account for the fact that electron 1 which is a reference electron is also moving then the sum rule states that the reference electron as it moves in the entire space that is allowed for it to move it will avoid exactly one electron charge that is correlation that is It'll, one electron has a charge and a spin and there are fundamental rules which will tell you that okay no two charge particles can be on the same position right in addition there is the antisymmetric requirement which in part is also understood as the pauli's exclusion principle that no two electrons of the same spin mind you same in addition spin. to charge yeah of the same spin can also be at the same position in space now the sum rules on the spin of the like kind says that the total integrated charge that a given spin electron will avoid in the entire space of the like spin is going to be exactly equal to minus 1 but then the overall sum rules which includes both coulomb and spin also says that it will avoid only an electron of minus 1 charge which is known as the whole charge density 
Now, if the spin part is again already minus 1, then the integral of the Coulomb hole, which is solely due to the avoidance of the like charges, has to be 0. This is the problem which we are not able to quantitatively or let's say to the extent of that accuracy that is required, we are able to compute. Because while the entire integration of the Coulomb hole is zero, but instantaneously at location R1 and R2, where R2 can be any one of n minus one electron, is not zero. So it can go up and down depending upon the correlation distance and so on. So this is the problem of Coulomb correlation, which we are not able to compute to our satisfaction. Now, this creates a problem when we take away the atoms in a molecule separated by very large distance when they are separated into neutral atoms. Right. Right. When there's no attraction or very, repulsion very, very, between yeah, them. At large Minimal. distances, very small interaction and finally the interaction disappears exponentially. Now the problem is that in such small part where you are experimentally looking at the dissociation limit of a molecule, you enlarge the vibrations and it dissociates. Sometimes we end up with ionic atoms. H can be H plus and H minus rather than 100% H neutral, H neutral. Right. So this is what is famously known as uh, the electron correlation problem. And we are still trying to improvise our methods. How long has this problem been open? Oh, it has been open since the day of quantum mechanics. Hmm. The moment, 27. 2027. 100 years. Yeah, that is a correlation problem. What's going on, Sumati? Um, we may not follow every every, Coulomb, every word Coulomb about systems. Coulomb systems. Have I that. think the quantum physicists will tell you, don't mess with it. Nothing. <laughs> well, these things can't be measured. Feynman <laughs> said that all quantum chemistry is physics. <laughs> but then we know what it is now. So the problem remains. Only thing is that the level of accuracy or the let's say the error limit has been actually brought down. Yeah, brought down considerably. But still, we cannot say that. Look. To the experimental accuracy of our measurements of dissociation limit, we can predict electron correlation problem. I mean, at, at exactly. some level, there's also this question of whether there's a fundamental conceptual problem or a fundamental calculational problem. Yeah. And I think those two are very different because, I mean, yes, when you have complex systems, we, you, I mean, maybe at some level you need a paradigmatic shift and you need to change the, like in the case that you gave of density functional yes. theory. But from what you're suggesting, it sounds like a calculational problem, which is very hard to do. And n-body simulations we know are very hard to do. And there have been many new advances in that. But... They're technically difficult questions, whereas sometimes there are conceptually difficult yeah, questions. Yeah, the, the solution would so be a new paradigm. Yeah, they're different. So I, is it that... So conceptually, we understand what the problem is. And computationally, it becomes uh, starting from the days of Hilleras, you know, where explicitly the electron-electron distance R12 was introduced into the wave function. 
prior to that, everything was orbital theories. You know, only electron one location was actually the independent parameter R1, R2, R3, R4. But now, Hiller has included R1, R2, R3, etc., etc., R12, R23, etc., etc., in the wave function. And then you, so your orbital picture is gone. You know, the, the conceptual thing is not that simple anymore. You, there are no orbitals, right? This is just a mathematical description. It is there that we do not have exact solutions even for helium atom. The habit for hydrogen? Hydrogen is exactly known. Okay. That is what is the basic. That's the, the basic. The, the, the hydrogen test. is exactly known in the non-relativistic Non-relativistic, non <laughs> yeah. I, I must, I must, I must add that. I'm assuming yeah. that we are talking about uh, uh, non-relativistic. Uh, Why don't we end with the also, physics question to you? Uh, you? You think of the world as discrete or continuous? Like what's the super substructure you go all the way down to the extent that this imagery is right and of course I think we have heard Sumati I think we kind of know what Deepak thinks about it do we know what Deepak thinks about it Deepak what's the answer is there such a thing as fundamental I would subs prefer not to actually we don't know the answer and I don't actually worry about it too much I work at some effective levels of description where uh, whether the you, you don't you, know, you don't feel curious about it? No, I'm curious, but I don't always have enough ability to address very subtle questions. So I try to address questions which are within my a bit gross <laughs> uh, within my abilities to address. Okay, of course. What does what is your uh, your intuition on it? Yeah, intuition that we have as quantum chemists, we we do believe that. There is a fundamental structure, which leads to... But what a structure? Yeah, let's say electronic structure, whether it is in terms of a certain level of approximation which can be improved and we can stretch it to, let's say, any numerical value after the decimal as far as energy is concerned, but not exact. That is a computational skill. Now, if you look at the way the discipline is operating, starting from very early times, you see, everything is telling us that there is an underlying structure. Popular examples like periodic table. Sure. Those are clues. Yeah, those are clues. But then they sort of give you a certain order, which is, let's say, for all chemical elements, not just atoms, elements, properties of elements. To extend it a little bit more, whatever was not known, the gaps were put. And those gaps are filled in terms of new discoveries of elements. Would you say that the standard model is under the periodic table? Like those elementary particles are leading to those elements? <laughs> for sure, Of yeah. course, right? For sure, yeah. yeah. I mean, for sure, I think that a uh, so, so, part of this uh, substructure is, that... is, is, I think, fairly well understood. Maybe details are not. We don't know how to calculate everything. We don't know how to do uh, understand quark confinement and questions like that. But I think, yeah. But I mean, large number of people work in physics beyond the standard model, and you know. So you know, the point is that standard model works well, but a lot of people are trying to explore things which are not in the standard model, like dark energy or something, something. Dark matter. 
yeah, dark matter, dark energy, and whatever, fifth force, whatever. So these are speculations just now. But I think one should not leave with the impression that standard model is the um, set in stone. Yeah. I mean, I think, in fact, with dark matter, which is interesting how the evidence comes from completely, you know, from very large scales, I think that would be perhaps the sort of, you know... Extra uh, element yeah. beyond standard yeah. model. And then you'd have to have something that explains that because this is not within the realm of gravity. Mm. It's not within the realm of quantum gravity, for sure. Maybe not. But uh, it's definitely something that's, uh, you know, in the realm of particle physics and, yeah. Just as a provocative idea, let me just say that, okay, there are all these quarks, but black holes, are they new objects which are fundamental or not? <laughs> you think black holes are objects? Black holes are like, yeah. like quarks, they been... are fundamental objects, but are they in the standard model or not? It's just a provocative, somewhat light question, not very profound. But to help you think that, okay, you know, this is not the end of the world. You can mm. you can add black holes to the standard model. Yeah, why not? Hmm? Like, why do they need to be, like, really tiny particles? Black no, hole is black dim holes, dimensionless, point-like. No, but but yeah. uh, you do. Uh, so, so, I mean, there are models of the early universe where you populate it with Planck-sized black holes and you, you know, these models have been studied, tried to understand whether they could be sources of dark matter. You know, these are phenomenological models. I wouldn't say that one has a great deal of belief in a lot of them, but again, depends on who you talk to. But I think that, yeah, ideas of black holes being kinds of fundamental objects, which are, of course, deeply related to gravity. But, um, yeah. I think those ideas have early, what do they call primordial black hole scenarios are there in cosmology. So that, um, and there's also still an idea that seeding of galaxies happens because of, you know, the central, central black hole of, uh, in the galaxy, these very supermassive black holes, which are several hundreds of solar masses, uh, sized black holes, which are the center, that they, they're the progenitors of structure in the early universe. So, I mean, at some level, yeah, I mean, whether they, there's a particle physics of black holes, one doesn't know, really. All right. Now, that's a good note to end this on with all those questions in the air. Thank you to all of you for making it. And we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.